The Apostle John recorded the revelation, and he stated this. He said, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly come, uh, take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, in the very beginning of the letter, he informs the reader of two very important facts. First, he said these things must shortly come to pass or must soon take place. And secondly, he writes that the things are written in signs and that they must be revealed. That means that the literature is apocalyptic in nature and that it must be revealed. He says again that it was signified or signified, we might say, by the angel of Jesus Christ, or it was spoken in signs. Now, that was done for a purpose. It was done for a purpose. It was done so the message could be sent and distributed among the Christians of the latter part of the first century. The message was against the Roman Empire. Now, let's keep in mind that when John wrote or recorded the revelation, he was on the Isle of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos was a prison colony. John was in prison. He was writing a letter addressed to the seven churches of Asia. Again, I think this was uh, uh, not a literal statement because this is apocalyptic language. It has to be uh, unveiled. It has to be uncovered. I think this is the number seven. It means... A complete number. There were several churches. There were more churches than seven in Asia Minor. And so it was just simply written to the churches of Asia. There were a lot of churches. And so from the Isle of Patmos, this prison colony, John wrote this revelation that was given to him by the angel of Jesus Christ. It was about the Roman Empire. It was written to encourage the Christians of the latter part of the first century to resist the Roman government. One of the big problems regarding the Roman Empire was they were trying to force upon those Christians the idea of emperor worship. They were trying to force them to honor the emperor as God. Now, Domitian the emperor would soon be taking the throne. And he was one of the most cruel emperors that the Christians would have to face. And when we think about the Roman Empire, and we think about how the Christians were mistreated, and we get into our minds about the Christians being thrown to the wild animals and the lions, and how they were wrapped in fresh animal skins and things of that nature... That was Emperor Domitian. And that was how he treated those Christians when they would not honor him as God and fall down before him. And he would have them dragged out into the streets and he would kill their families and their children and things of that nature if they didn't honor him as God. So this revelation was delivered to the Apostle John as an encouragement to say, hang in there, don't fear those who kill the body but fear Him who can kill both body and soul in hell. This life is temporary. On the other side is eternal bliss. So hang in there. Don't worship the emperor. 
Now remember, all of this is apocalyptic literature. It has to be uncovered with the key that these people had. And so when we study it, we have to keep that in mind, right? The material within its pages has also, we have to remember, already taken place. It must shortly come to pass. It was written 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years isn't a short time according to anybody's calendar, right? The only thing that hasn't taken place is that second coming of Christ. And we're waiting on that. Now, we are in the last days. We are in the last days according to what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. This is what Joel talked about in Joel chapter 2. And he pointed back to that. But we see that except again for that second coming, the overthrow of Babylon according to Revelation, which is the Roman Empire, all that has happened. All of that destruction, all of that torment that was cast upon the the Christians of the latter part of the second century, all that's happened. So the revelation has been fulfilled. And that brings us up to chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, which is the vision that John had of the final day. And this is yet in the future. And he described for the reader the events of that day. Now again, let's keep in mind the literature here is still apocalyptic. It still has to be uh, unveiled. It still has to be figured out. It still We still have to use the key to open the signs and the symbols. And, and we've got the key because the, the first century folks, they had the key. And it's found in the Scriptures. We can understand what that means. And so what this means is it's not literal. There's no actual throne room in heaven. There's no literal throne in heaven. It's a spirit realm. There are no actual bodies in heaven. We're spirits in heaven, right? And so, but we're able to piece together, for the most part, the key to unlock what this apocalyptic literature means. So in a vision, John sees into the throne room of heaven, and on this throne he sees Christ sitting. The Father has committed all judgment to Christ. John 5.22, Romans 14.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10, and the Christ is sitting upon the seat of God because He is God. John 1.1-3 and verse 14. And heaven and earth had vanished away, and it is replaced with the new heaven and the new earth, which is heaven itself. And John's going to see that in a vision just later on in the Revelation. Then John says, and the books were opened. Of course, we understand the purpose of books. It's to record information. Then he said the sea gave up the dead. So no matter how one dies in this world, no matter what happens to the shell of the body, those people are going to be resurrected on that final day. And death is personified here. And death gives up all the dead, those who have gone on before, those who have ever lived in the past or who will ever live, are going to stand before Christ on that last day. 
In the lake of fire, of course, we understand that to be the final abode for all who do not stand with the saints of God. Every person needs to consider the reality of the judgment day, the final day. It's a real day. It is a future day. It's a final day. It is a revealing day. And all people will be there. Everyone who's ever lived will be there on that day. We won't miss that day. We won't be late for that day. I want us to listen to what the Bible says about the judgment. The writer of Hebrews says it is a day of certainty. Hebrews 9.27 Luke recorded that Paul said it is an appointed day. Acts 17.31 Paul said that it was an all-inclusive day. 2 Corinthians 5.10 All people are going to be there. It will be a day of accountability, Paul told those in Rome. Romans 14.10-12 through 12. The Lord Himself said it will be a day of separating. Matthew 25.31-33 The sheep on one hand and the goats on the other. And then, of course, in our passage before us today, it is going to be a day of reading because the books are going to be opened. And that's what I want us to focus on for just a few moments this morning. I want us to think about those books. The books. The title of the sermon this morning is, And the Books Were Opened. Let's consider the books that will be open for just a moment. Not just one book, but the books, the plural. There are going to be a few books that are going to be opened on that day. And John said we're going to be judged out of, that, out of those books. But there has to be a standard. With God, there is always a standard by which one will be judged. And that standard is the law. So that's going to be the first book that we're going to notice for just a few, few moments. One of the books that's going to be opened is the book of law. Now, the great continuing witness of all ages is the Bible. And the Old Testament continues to be probably the most impressive witness of deity and the Godhood of Christ in that it established His place historically prior to the Incarnation. Prior to His coming into this world as a person, it established His identity as the second person of the Godhood. As we look down through the history of God's interaction with humanity, I think we can establish that it has always been the second person of the Godhood who has continuously and always been the one who has interacted with humanity. When we read about Jehovah God in the Old Testament, I think we are reading about the second person of the Godhood. I think that is the one who spoke to the heads of the home under the patriarchal law. I think He is the one who directed Adam in the garden. I think He is the one who spoke with Job. I think He is the one who dealt with Noah. I think He is the one who dealt with anyone directly, the prophets. Anyone who spoke with God on a one-on-one -on -one basis, whether it was Moses or anyone else, 
I think we're talking about the second person of the Godhood. He instructed them on how to worship properly or how to do anything else. When Cain disobeyed his instruction about the proper worship to offer, it was Jehovah who went to him, much like a parent would to a child, saying this, Genesis 4 verse 6, Why art thou wroth, and why is thou countenance fallen? He didn't go to Cain with an iron fist and try to rough him up and, and was ugly with him. He wanted to go to Cain with love in his heart and say, Cain, why are you doing what you're doing? It wasn't his idea to immediately cast Cain out and try to punish him for no good reason. He wanted Cain to change the things he was doing. That was the second person of the Godhood. And then he explained the standard by which he was judged. He wanted Cain to know why what he did was wrong. Notice verse 7. If thou doest well, thou shalt, not, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Cain knew very well why what was expected of him. How do we know that? We don't have every detail recorded for us in the Bible, but we know that Abel offered the proper sacrifice. We know that God doesn't respect one person over the other, Acts chapter 10 and 11. Peter, let that be known. And so the second person of the Godhood went to him, and he wanted him to do better. When Moses saw that bush that burned with fire but yet wasn't consumed, he took off his shoes and he approached it, and out of that flame spoke the second person of the Godhood. We remember all those excuses. Moses said, well, I'm not a good speaker. I can't go down to, down to Egypt. I can't do that. And, and, and he had this conversation back and forth. And finally Moses said, well, who am I going to say sent me? Notice what God's reply was in Exodus 3.14. He told him, he said, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now let's move forward years into the New Testament. We're standing there as Jesus is on trial and they're trying their best to find Him guilty of some kind of a crime and they're trumping up charges and they had already brought in false witnesses and it wasn't working. And finally, Mark fourteen sixty one, the high priest asked Jesus, he said, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the blessed? And notice in verse 62, Jesus answered, I am. He gave His name. He said, I am. Then He said this, And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus is, I am. He is the second person of the Godhood. He has always been the one that interacted with humanity. He was the one in the Old Testament that gave the standards of the law. He was the one who delivered that canon. He was the one who sent His angels to Mount Sinai and gave it to Moses. And of course, that's all it took. The high priest tore his clothes. He condemned him to death. But throughout that Old Testament, we see those standards. 
God is a fair and a just God. He's going to judge those who lived under the patriarchal law and the law of Moses according to that standard. But now we also have the new law. We have the new law. In the last days, the New Testament has been the standard by which all people have been commanded to live. On the first Pentecost following the the resurrection of Jesus, Peter and the other apostles preached the first gospel sermon. Peter stood in Jerusalem and he said, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, Acts 2, 16 through 17. Now we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. We may be in the last days for another 2,000 years. I don't know. It may end tomorrow. But our days personally might end at any point. So we have to be prepared. But Peter quoted from the prophet Joel who foretold of that event. And so he talked about those coming days. So now we live under the new law, not the old law. And Paul would go on to say in Colossians 2.14 that the old law was nailed to the cross when Christ was nailed to the cross, blotting it out of the way. So the old law has gone. It has been fulfilled, taken away. Now we live under a new law. So on the day of judgment, anyone who has lived since Peter and the other apostles preached that first sermon, they're going to... They're going to be judged according to a different standard. Still a just and a righteous standard, but a different law. The new law. And so that will be one of the books opened on that day. So we better know what it is. It's going to be a different, a different law. It's going to be the gospel plan of salvation. A plan of faith. A system of faith. Paul said, speaking of the system of faith, it produces personal faith, right? Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please Him. We have to have that faith. Paul talked about that in Romans. Without uh, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans ten seventeen. So we have to have that system of faith to produce our personal faith. We have to be willing to repent of our past sins, right? That's what we'd already mentioned, Acts 17, 31. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch did. That's what Peter preached in Acts 3, 19. That's what he preached in, on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 38. Immersion in water, that's part of that New Testament law. Washing those sins away because that's something the old law couldn't do. That's part of that new law. Proper worship, part of that new law. We sing, making melody in our hearts. Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.18 and 19. Without the accompaniment of anything other than our voices that we lift up. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13 said, We offer the fruit of our lips. We pray to God. Acts 20, verse 28. We preach. We preach the doctrine of Christ, whether it's popular or whether it's not popular. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. 
We give of our means, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 1 and 2. We do all of the things that God's asked us to do. We observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. We do those things because God's asked us to remember those things. We remember evangelism. That's part of the new law. We call it the the Great Commission, don't we? Matthew 28, 18-20. Mark 16, 15-16. One of the books to be opened on the Day of Judgment will be the Book of the Law. Now here's another book that we need to be familiar with and we need to be conscious of. That's the Book of Living. The Book of Living. Paul warned this. He said, "...for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done." whether it be good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Notice what happens to the good. John recorded this, Revelation 14, verse 13. He said, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Those who die as faithful Christians... They will rest in the Lord because their works do follow them. And they are rewarded for their faithfulness. They're not working their way into heaven, but their works do follow them. That goes into the book of the living. It's recorded. It's going to be recognized. Why is that? Notice Jeremiah 31 verse 34. Jeremiah was a prophet. Jeremiah prophesied of the new covenant. He prophesied about that coming new covenant that God would make with Israel. In prophesying about that, he said, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. He said, For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord." For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. That's what happens when we stand and we're judged the things done in the body, whether good or whether bad. When it's judged the good, that's what goes into the book of the living. The bad is forgotten. Under the new covenant, Sins can be forgiven and forgotten, never to be remembered. You couldn't get that under the old law. You couldn't get that under the old law. The forgotten sins do not follow the child of God. The people of the world may continually remember those things, not God. God does not remember that. Those sins will not be recorded. That's what made the covenant superior, the new covenant superior to the old one, right? It offered forgiveness of sin, removal of sin from one's record, pardon as if it had never happened. That's what grace does. God didn't have to do that. He doesn't owe that to anyone, but because of His measureless love, He gave that to the faithful. It can't be explained, but He loves that much. He wanted to be reunited with His people And that's the way He does it. Then you have the bad. Paul said the things done in the body, whether it be good or bad, all the biblical writers are clear. Humanity will be judged according to their works. If they did the works of God properly and they obeyed the plan of salvation, they're going to be where they need to be. 
If they didn't, their works will follow them also. Modern theologists don't like that truth. They don't, they don't like the idea of a person's deeds being recorded and entered into the judgment which he or she receives. Jesus warned this, John 5 beginning with verse 26. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The writer of Hebrews spoke of the wicked and the unfaithful falling into the hands of the living God. He said this, Hebrews 10.31, He said it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why is that? Well, verses 19-31 through explain exactly why that is. When we look at that complete context, we learn that Jesus made it possible by the shedding of His blood to enter into the holiest. He goes on to tell us that we're to draw near to God because of that. Are we doing that? That's what we need to ask ourselves. He says, hold fast your profession of faith. We need to understand that we are to do that. We are to hold fast our profession as Christians. Are we doing that? We need to. That means to hold on to it as if it were for dear life. Are we placing our profession of faith above all other things? There are people out there... Do you recall, if you're a sports fan, I used to be a big sports fan. I fail to remember his name now, the, the Baltimore Orioles player who played so many games, broke Lou Gehrig's record, Cal Ripken Jr. Didn't miss a game. On and on and on. Didn't miss a... We're talking about a baseball game. We're talking about a baseball game. If he'd ever played a baseball game, what really impact would that have on the world? None. And he was held up as some kind of a, of a hero. He held fast to his profession, didn't he? You gotta give him that. The writer of Hebrews says, hold fast your profession of faith. Well, that needs to translate to our Christianity, right? Yeah, I think of Brother Joe and Sister Ruth and, 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 and those folks who, you know, you couldn't beat them out of here with a stick. They're holding fast their profession. Why? Because Christ died and He made it possible to enter into the holiest. He says, hold fast your profession of faith. What sore punishment can you expect when you trod under your feet the blood of Jesus there was a terrible punishment under that old or worse covenant. When you trod under your feet, this better covenant brought about by the blood of Jesus, what kind of punishment can you expect? That's why it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, a righteous, a just God, that when He determines by looking into the book of the living, 
looking at the record of life that a person is deserving of punishment. That's why it's a fearful thing. The book of law will be opened. The book of the living will be opened. And finally, we're going to notice the book of life will be opened. The faithful will find their names recorded in the book of life. Speaking of heaven, John said, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven. Only those who have lived according to God's standard, the book of law, and the book of the living, will find their names in the book of life. All those others have lived according to Satan's standards. Paul spoke of the difference. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 When Jesus returns, John 14.1-3, promised He would, He is returning to gather His people, not the people of the world. Now what's the difference? The people of the world behave like Jesus behaves. Or, the, or His people behave like He behaves. Not the way the world behaves. His people speaks the way He speaks. Not the way the world speaks. His people dresses the way He dresses. And I'm talking about modestly. Not the way the world dresses. And He notices those things. And He's recording those things in the book of the living. And that has a lot to do with the book of life, along with all the other actions and thoughts. But the faithful don't have to worry about those things. If one's name is written in the book of life, only good works will follow them into eternity. But the unfaithful will have their names removed from the book of life. John also wrote this, Revelation twenty-two nineteen. And if any man shall take away from the words of the, of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from things written which are written in this book. That's just one way to have your name removed from the book of life. Any unfaithfulness will result in a person's name being removed. Let's return to Galatians chapter 5. Paul spoke of the works of the flesh, the things to avoid if one wanted to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians five nineteen through 21 Of course, in this context, he's talking about heaven. That is the kingdom of God. Now, that is in perfect conformity with what the wise king stated. Right? 
when we look in Proverbs chapter 6, 16 through 19, notice what he said. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Notice what John said as well. Revelation 22, beginning with verse 14. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. You see, anyone involved in anything God hates will not have His name added to, and it will be removed from the book of life. The judgment day is real, and it's coming at some point in the future. We don't know when it's coming. According to Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, no one knows the day or the hour. Only God in heaven knows that. The angels have no idea. No one on earth has any idea. It's just coming. And so we have to be prepared. But God has given us a book of law to prepare for it. And we have to. We have no excuses when that day comes. In the, when the books are opened. And they will be opened. It's everyone's responsibility to ensure that we're ready. And we can be prepared for that. The works which follow us into eternity have a lot to do with where we're going to stand. We only have the time in the present to prepare for that. Now we've talked about what the book of the law says. And only, the only law book we are concerned with is the New Testament law. And we talked about the, excuse me, the plan of salvation. If you're not a Christian, we've talked about faith and repentance and confession Immersion in water. But you have to have faithful living. That's part of the, the book of living. That's part of those works that follow. If you've been faithful and you've fallen away, you need to come back through repentance and prayer. Let that be known as we stand and as we